Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. On this week's episode, I am talking to the, dare I say, legendary architecture critic, Paul Goldberger. Paul began his career as an architecture critic at the New York Times, where he worked with Ada Louise Huxtable before moving to The New Yorker, where he wrote about architecture and building for nearly 15 years. He's currently a contributing editor at Vanity Fair and is spending more and more of his time writing books. He's the author, most recently, of Building Art, a really fun biography of Frank Gehry, and his new book, which actually just came out yesterday, is called Ballpark, Baseball and the American City, which, um, as someone who doesn't really know anything about baseball, I wasn't sure I would enjoy it, but found it to be a really fascinating look at the history of baseball parks and what it tells us about how we think about our cities. In this conversation, Paul and I talk about his storied career and how architecture criticism has evolved over his time writing. We talk about his goals as a critic and the role of the critic. We talk about how he structures biographies in his books. And we talk about the process for the baseball book and what these baseball parks tell us about the future of cities. Paul is obviously somebody that I've wanted to have on the podcast for a long time. His writing has influenced not only myself, but so many of the guests that I've had on the podcast before. So it was so great to finally have him on the show to talk about all of these things that we're interested in. It was a real honor, and I hope that you enjoy the conversation. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. When you become a member, you get an exclusive monthly newsletter that kind of reflects and expands on the themes of the podcast, shares news and events about previous guests, and gives a preview of upcoming episodes. When you become a member, you help support the ongoing production of the podcast and really help keep it going. I just appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this excellent conversation with Paul Goldberger. podcast started about kind of graphic design specifically, but I've ended up talking to a lot of people in architecture and a lot of architecture critics. And your name obviously comes up mm-hmm. all the time as kind of the model that has inspired or influenced uh, all of these other architecture critics that I've talked about. Um, Christopher Hawthorne, specifically, I remember him telling me that he would read you in the New York Times when he was in high school, yeah, right. so he kind of knew what architecture criticism yeah. was because of you. And I was, I was thinking about that in preparing for this and thinking about how your career started mm-hmm. at the Times, you know, essentially with Ada Louise Huxtable, who we still kind of consider is the creator of architecture criticism as we know it today. And so the question that I'm getting to is, what were your models when you were starting, or what did architecture criticism mean when your career was beginning? Or did you have a sense Mm -hmm. of the type of work you wanted to do um, now being the person that's kind of influencing this next group of people? Well, there's no question, you know, Ada Louise Huxtable was, was sort of the mother of us all yeah, yeah, in, yeah. in every way. Um, and it was a phenomenal piece of good fortune that I could work with her yeah. at the beginning of my career. Um, I had a sort of funny, almost accidental beginning to my career, okay. actually. I mean, I, I, I loved architecture, but 
I didn't initially think it would be my career. Okay. I, I thought I would be a more general journalist. Mm. And I actually, I was, that's not entirely correct. I okay. was torn between being a general journalist and being an academic in architectural history. Oh, okay. Okay. And when I got my undergraduate degree, I um, was named runner-up but did not get a fellowship <laughs> that I really wanted for graduate study in Cambridge, England. Okay. And I didn't want to enroll immediately in a PhD program in the U.S. I was also sort of vaguely thinking about architecture school, but not mm -hmm. with any certainty. To thinking architecture school to become to be, an architect? To become an architect, okay. but okay. I, I really had a sense I was more interested in writing. Yeah, yeah. But I hadn't completely gotten the instinct <laughs> about becoming an architect out of me. And I had also done a lot of journalism, and including some work for the New York Times when I was, an, when I was a student which led them to know me and right. offered me a job, uh, a great sort of job at the Sunday Magazine as a kind of entry level, very junior assistant yeah. editor. Yeah, yeah. So I thought, well, all right, it'll be fun to go to New York for a year or two. And I can, you know, earn a little money, clear my head from academia for a little while and yeah. make up my mind once and for all whether I'm going to go ahead and do graduate work in architectural history or go to architecture school and become an architect. Yeah. And I never left. I mean, right, 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 right. You know, one thing led to another, and I spent a couple of years doing other work at the New York Times, but found myself freelancing architecture articles. Okay. Partly to earn an extra couple of dollars, but it was really more because I really didn't want right. to be away from it. Right. And right. So I would, you know, I wrote something for Architectural Forum, for Art News, for and for the New York yeah. Times itself sometimes. Yeah. And without consciously setting out to do it, I realized I'd kind of built up a portfolio of them. And then an amazing piece of good luck happened, which is that Ada Louise Huxtable was changing the nature of what she was doing. She was appointed to the editorial board of the Times, but she was not giving up being an architecture critic entirely. And she was going to continue writing Sunday columns, but remember, these were the days when journalism was big and mighty, yeah, yeah, and yeah, all yeah. they did was hire people, not fire them. Yeah. And they wanted a junior architecture critic to yeah. do some of the day-to-day -day work. Well, what better person than me? I was this kid, but I was there. They already knew that I was sort of a nice guy who worked hard. Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. Uh, and I think uh, I didn't, I wasn't conscious of this at the time, but I realized later that Ada Louise's backing me for the job was not solely out of generosity, but also because she really didn't want somebody with a big reputation. Right. Because she was staying around, and she right. wanted it very clear that she was the top banana. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah. so, what could be better than a young guy who was just learning? Yeah. Trade? And so, it kind of worked. You know, it's always really important to remember uh, that I think every successful career uh, has an element of luck to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and the people who deny that are either fooling themselves or trying to fool you. One of the <laughs> right. I don't mean to make this a a what if question, mm -hmm. but have you thought about 
if you ended up going into academia, would how that career would have been different than the one you had now? Yeah. Would your interests have been different? And, and maybe a sub question, or maybe this is completely unrelated, but I imagine working with Ada Louise, you learned all sorts of things about writing, but also about architecture and how to look yeah. at architecture. Was that a kind of equal education to what you would have had, uh, but with maybe a different audience or a different uh, place to write? Yeah, I had, I had a great education working with Ada Louise. Yeah, no I can't imagine. About it. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I mean, we had a great time first because, you know, we were sort of the only people at the paper who really cared about architecture. So right. we had a very good time just kind of gossiping as well as, oh, well right, as doing other right, stuff right. too. And um, <laughs> yeah. what I learned from her though as much, almost more than about architecture was about the politics of architecture, mm. about how architecture worked in New York, about how you balance different things about how right. it's never only about aesthetics, right. but it's never only about economics or politics either. Right. And to you know, be properly skeptical of real estate and, and all that stuff. But you know, I was doubly lucky in a way because I had, two, I had really two important mentors in my career. One was Vincent Scully, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. who I yeah. studied with, and the other was Ada Louise. Right. Um, <laughs> It was sort of interesting that they actually were not very fond of each other. Um, oh, okay. And I went actually, at Ada Louise's memorial service. I was honored to be asked to, to speak. And I mentioned that and I said it was sort of like growing up with divorced parents. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. Because I felt very loyal to both of them and they were not very fond of each right, other. Right. Uh, I think it may have just been professional jealousy of a certain yeah, sort. Yeah. I don't know. But anyway. Um, but, you know, they, they were both very important. I think Scully was probably more important in actually shaping my eye and how I look at buildings. Oh, okay. Uh, Ada Louise was more important in terms of my figuring out how to navigate the world of criticism and journalism in New York. That's really interesting to me as I was rereading a bunch of your work to prepare for this and obviously reading the new book on on. Uh, baseball parks, I was struck by how well you, or how good you are at blending, talking about the aesthetics, talking about the building itself with these larger questions around politics or economics. I read an interview that you'd done about your um, your Ground Zero book and how the editor wanted you to replace, was oh, replace yes. architecture it and was, politics uh, because you right. were writing about this. And I noticed right, this right, is a right. thread through yeah. a lot of your work that yeah. it starts with a object or a thing, but becomes about something much well, more. You know, if you, if you don't talk about the other stuff, you're just comparing shapes. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, I, and I don't mean to say that there's not such a thing as serious form-based criticism and analysis. Of course there is. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, a work of architecture is a piece of form that exists within political, social, and economic realities. Right. And it ultimately has to be evaluated with an awareness of all those realities, as well as an awareness of its existence as a piece of form. Yeah. And I, I, I feel that the most important thing to really understand if 
you want to criticize architecture is to be able to see it as multiple things at once. Right. In other words, if you see it as either this or that, it, it won't work. Yeah. You, it must be both and, because architecture is both and. Right. It is an aesthetic object, and it is a, a thing with um, practical as well as theoretical reality. Right. Which, you know, a work of art is not necessarily. Yeah. But a work of architecture is. I have a, this is possibly a weird question and possibly a question that won't go anywhere, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious about the, the places where you've written. Specifically, I'm thinking about your earlier work at the Times and at the New Yorker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you writing, I'll admit that I obviously have not read everything that you, <laughs> you wrote during your time yeah, there, but if, were you writing... Even my mother did. Okay, okay, okay. Were you writing specifically, how much of what you were writing was about New York buildings and then were you thinking about the audiences being New Yorkers also um, and did that play a part in thinking about these as not just buildings but right. as functional objects that real people well, go to what I wrote for the, both the Times and the New Yorker was a mix of New York and okay. national and international okay stuff. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I did as much as I could of that stuff the limit was time and budget right right um, neither of which felt as limited then as they do now. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, but I think you, this applies to any building everywhere. I mean, I remember flying to Munich to write about Herzog and de Moron's soccer stadium. Right, 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 right. I mean, you think about that in terms of its social and political existence as well as its aesthetic yeah. existence. I mean, I guess, I guess the thing I was thinking about when I asked that is just how much of, and this is something that I know you've talked about a lot, but how much of the architecture discourse or the architecture press has become so globalized and that that there is this idea of architects now and that we look at these figures as heroes and their buildings as aesthetic objects, I think, in a lot of ways. Did, has that changed or, or am I kind of wishing to go back to something that maybe never was. You know what I mean? I do, and you're wishing to go back to something <laughs> okay. that maybe never was. Okay. Uh, I, okay. I don't think... You know, the architect phenomenon, yeah, it's part of our culture, but uh, it's not completely without precedent. Uh, I mean, right. look at what a celebrity Frank Lloyd Wright was. Right, 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 time, right. And what, right. A, what an incredible manipulator of media he was, actually. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah. In, in, in his lifetime. Um, and... Certainly, there have been, you know, Philip Johnson was a celebrity. Right, right, right. I yeah, am yeah, yeah, of course. a yeah. celebrity. And so, yeah. uh, even before this new age of celebrity architecture. I mean, I think, you know, there's no question we live in a culture that is more attuned to celebrate celebrity than right. before. We also live in a culture that is more architecture aware and more visually aware. Right. And if you put all that stuff together, it will kind of yield the. Uh, star architect phenomenon somewhat, but you know uh, Henry Hobson Richardson in the late nineteenth century was yeah, yeah, yeah. going around doing buildings in Chicago and right Boston right. and New York and Buffalo right. and all kinds of places and so so yeah. were you I mean let, let me maybe ask the question in another way were you writing for when you were thinking about your audience, were you thinking about people who would be encountering the buildings? Or were you writing from a place of, um, 
educating other people okay. or uh, kind of talking uh, at, I, I think you know, both. I, I think both. I don't okay. think those are mutually exclusive okay. at all. Um, I mean, certainly if you were writing, because the Times had proportionately more readers in New York than elsewhere, yeah, yeah. but it still was, even before the internet, it was seen elsewhere too. Right. Um, but nevertheless, most readers were in New York. Um, the likelihood that they would encounter the building was higher right. than somewhere right. else. Right. But at the same time, you know, architecture is part of culture. Right. And you're, you're writing much more than a consumer guide. You want people yeah. to know of the significant things, and they in turn want to know about the significant things going on. I see. Yeah. Uh, in the same way that, you know, you may or may not see a certain movie or play or yeah. opera. Yeah. But yeah. a good critic will write about those things with some recognition that this is of note or might be not of note, <laughs> right, but, but right. in the in the culture of this moment. And therefore people who want to be aware of what's significant will want to read it. It's much more than a consumer guide. Right, case. right. Can you talk about that a little bit more and specifically about I'm 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 really interested in how criticism as a practice has evolved over your career and maybe it's criticism itself kind of standing in culture and, and the way we treat it and just talking about the New York Times having essentially two architecture critics like you said sounds magical like it was it was a pretty amazing you know there was a certainly in my early years at the Times um, it was amazing uh, the Times really tried very hard to write about almost everything significant yeah. in every field. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, almost every movie, almost every play, almost every recital. Right. They were, the music people even wrote about, you know, debuts. Yeah, yeah. Of, of new pianists. Um, and in fact, I, I think sometimes people would plan a debut solely to get reviewed in the New York Times. Right. And there was this feeling that it was like, you know, if the tree falls in the forest and the New York Times is not getting <laughs> oh, right, it, right, right, doesn't make right, a sound. Right, right. You know, it's a, and uh, that had begun to ebb in my time there. I mean, we were beginning to think, space was beginning to get a little yeah. bit tighter. Yeah. Uh, and there was an increasing sense that the times had to be selective. Right. That, um, it was still covering most really significant things. And we covered most art exhibitions and yeah. most galleries. Yeah. I mean, it was just, you know, it was fantastic. And uh, the New York Times really was the thing that proved that something had happened. Right. Because it was there. Right. And those days are long since gone. Um, there is a feeling, which I'm not entirely sure I share, that readers want broader, more analytical pieces that are more about trends than specific. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is, you know, it's hard to write about the forest when you ignore most of the trees. Right. And, and, right. and so, right. uh, and it's true that writing only about trees doesn't constitute writing about the forest either. So, you know, it's... You've a, done a great job of stretching this it, metaphor, it, by it, the way. It, it, well, <laughs> I think it can now be with the rest. But it's, uh, but, no, I know what you mean, though. Yeah, and, and so, you know, you try to balance all that stuff, that's all. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, and I, I almost feel like you've 
you know, maybe not just criticism in general, but your career that that I think there's been a certain trajectory. And I think even going from the New Yorker to Vanity Fair was a move from um, something that gave you a little bit more flexibility that let you kind of maybe cast your own interest in some ways and write about some larger ideas and have some some freedom. Um, yeah. How, how can can you just talk about that that kind of transition of your career from, you know, writing about each new thing to kind of stepping back and thinking about? Well, things I think a little, I've been doing um, it in stages. Yeah, actually. yeah, of course. I mean, you know, the New Yorker at the New York Times. I mean, because I was lucky enough to start my career pretty young, I'd been doing it for a while, and eventually, you you want to do some other things. I didn't really want to go leave architecture, but right. I want to do some other things, and I spent a few years as cultural editor, and uh, then got tired of going to budget meetings and things like that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then became chief cultural correspondent, and occasionally did some architecture pieces, but tried to right. do broader things, and then the opportunity came to go to the New Yorker, um, which again, was a chance to sort of not do everything, but do the stuff that seems most compelling and most right. interesting and exciting. And I did a mix of longer pieces, particularly I was there during the whole uh, time of 9-11. And, you know, that yielded several long pieces and ultimately a book, too. Then, you know, I'd done that for 15 years. That was yeah. a while. Well, I mean, I, yeah, and I think, like, even now, I feel like so much of your output now is in book form, that, that yeah, you're is, kind of spending time writing yeah, books. Yeah, I, I'm really not doing much journalism yeah. anymore. And Was that a conscious decision, or, or was that a, a something just kind of following your interests? Or? I think it's a mix of things. Um, following my interests and realizing that, uh, as a friend of mine once said when I was working on a book that was not making enough progress, in part because I was doing a lot of articles and kept oh, interrupting it. Yeah, yeah. So turned to me and said, you know, this book is not going to write itself. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Yeah. I, 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 it was sort of a wake-up call. And I realized that if I wanted to do spend more time on books, the time had to come from somewhere. Um, also, look, journalism is not, there's not as much of it to do as there was before. Yeah. And the days when it was a, uh, if you were a writer, it was sort of a seller's market. <laughs> and you right, could, you know, right. The New York Times wanted anything I could possibly do, and they had right. room to print it. And if I wrote a piece a day, they would have been happy. <laughs> yeah, and it yeah. was, you know, it was crazy. Yeah. And so, you know, those days were long gone. Um, so there was less journalism calling out to be done. I, I've actually thought about other things. And for a while at Vanity Fair, I was doing a lot of short, casual online Oh yeah, that were online yeah. only right. that I enjoyed doing. Those subsided when they sort of shifted the website and uh, made it really solely about um, politics, Hollywood, right. and Silicon Valley. You know, right. Those three right. subjects and other things sort of no longer um, had a place. So I sort of found myself doing less of that, which further encouraged me to spend more time on on books. Can you talk about if there if you see a difference between 
I'm, I'm using the word criticism a lot, and I notice you're using the word journalism a lot, and I'm wondering uh, if you see a difference yeah, between yeah, those. Yeah, no, that's a very fair, interesting question. I was not even conscious of it, but you're right. Um, I mean, there's a huge overlap. Yeah. But uh, they're also not precisely the same. And I guess I... I mean, in, in the Venn diagram, I see myself in the point of overlap. Totally, yeah. And I just, I think it was really more accidental that I used the word journalism. Because I was really, uh, one thing I've been very conscious of is the extent to which architecture has been, architecture and all criticism have been affected by the larger forces in journalism, right? Mm, yeah. And I think that's really why I brought in the word. Yeah. Um, I mean, particularly print journalism which has contracted hugely mm -hmm. and uh, is no longer the, the thing it was. Um, criticism has, to some extent, reformed its re-hyphen form, not reformed, <laughs> right. reshaped itself, let's say, um, in response to digital media. But yeah. it's still finding itself very much. And there's an interesting mix of stuff uh, ranging from the very good to the appalling um, yeah, in digital of, media. Of course, yeah. Um, and as well as podcasts and every, everything else. So, you know, it's still in a period of finding itself and, and reshaping itself, I think. Yeah, I mean, and, and hearing you say that, it, it was I was thinking about it reading the, the baseball book. Mm -hmm. And also I was thinking about it, I read uh, your Frank Gehry biography, mm -hmm. and I, I'm, I'm very interested in we can maybe make it specifically about the Gary biography and hopefully connect it to, to baseball a little bit. I'm interested in people who have made a career as, as critics or people who kind of give their opinion and then writing a biography. I talked to Mark Lamster about this with mm -hmm. his Philip Johnson biography and, and other people who have written biographies. How do, do you think you're turning off some sort of critical lens when you do that because you need to tell a story or you need to be accurate to someone's life? How much of yourself can come into that? And I think it's the same with, with baseball also. This is, it is a, you are telling a story there. I think there's criticism in it, yeah. but it's, it's much more of a, a narrative. Where do you come in if you do in those types of projects? That's a good question. Um, I don't think criticism and narrative are mutually exclusive. Uh, I think if you are a critic, you will write a somewhat different narrative mm. than mm. you might have. Interesting. Uh, and you will certainly weave together analysis slash criticism uh, with the narrative. Right. Uh, but you know, there's plenty of precedent for doing that too. Um, I mean, I. I think of one of the books that I was very conscious of when I worked on the Gary book was the fantastic biography of uh, de Kooning by oh, um, Mark Stevens and Annalyn Swan. Okay, who I don't came know out this. A few years ago, won the Pulitzer Prize. I okay, really uh, adding it to the list. Beautiful, uh, beautifully written, very comprehensive story that. Um, shows, as many other books do too, but this particularly well, shows that narrative and journalism and criticism right, are not right. mutually exclusive. Um, but I think also my time at The New Yorker showed me that because if there's anything The New Yorker okay. uh, oh, yeah, really sort of believes in, and I think David Remnick in particular has promoted, um, 
it is not criticism per se in the short critical essay, but longer form analytical reporting. Right. That that's um, interesting. Has a point yeah. of view. Yeah. And conveys the point of view, but weaving it together with a lot of facts, a lot of reporting, a lot of information. And, and that's the New Yorker's been doing that forever too. Look, look at the classic New Yorker profiles yeah, of yeah, people. Yeah, from, yeah. Some of them from 50, 60, 70 years ago. Uh, they, they do that. So um, learning about that kind of writing, I think, helped me a huge amount on the Gary book as well. Oh, interesting. Actually, uh, that a kind of interpretive analytical narrative yeah. that also has criticism as a part of it. Yeah, I mean, one of I, I have this theory about New Yorker profiles, and maybe this extends to biographies too. Now that I think about it, is that the the profiles that I love the most are the ones that when I'm done, I can't totally tell if the writer likes the person or not. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's uh, it's not negative, it's not positive, but it's not it's this like you know this kind of weird in between, which I kind of got in your Gary book. Now that I think yeah, about I mean, it, you get I. Like, you know, I, I, because it's more sophisticated yeah. writing than, like, what you might read in an airline magazine. Right, <laughs> right, somebody, right, you know, right. It's not, it's not a bland feature article right. that says how wonderful this person right. is. Um, it's analytical and critical, um, and yet intimate at the same time. And, look, that's the reality of most people anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, is yeah, that yeah. They are not simple goods or simple evils, but rather complex things, and, and this kind of writing tries to get at that. I mean, I, I think the Gary book is is fundamentally positive about him, and I want oh, yeah, him yeah. to be, and I yeah. like him, but, but, you know, you you get a few, his flaws are not absent. Right, right. It, you know, when it gets to that kind of glowing feature, you'll throw in a sentence or a paragraph that kind of, <laughs> kind of pulls it back a little yeah, bit. Yeah, and also he, you know, he screwed himself and a lot of other people at various times with yeah. behaving yeah. badly and then yeah. that's in it and so forth. Yeah. And then so let's let's talk about the the baseball book a little bit because I think it actually kind of connects a lot of the things mm-hmm. that, that yeah. we're talking about because I got it um I got it from your publisher and I was interested in it because I'm interested in you, but I have no interest in baseball. Um I'm not sure I've ever been to a a baseball game to to be honest. Uh but I started reading it and was really enjoying it and was kind of surprised. And, and, you're, and you're the dream reader okay. because it's, you know, I, I want this book to interest people who are not interested in yeah. baseball. Yeah. And I, by the same token, I wanted to interest baseball people who are not interested in architecture. Right. And, right. and I, I'm hoping that it can bring both of those worlds together. Yeah. In a way. Well, I wonder if people who are interested in baseball will will take what like the opposite of what I took from it in that oh this book actually and it's kind of like the ground zero book switching architecture mm-hmm. oh this isn't actually about baseball this is about cities and how we think of cities and the yes. development of cities and baseball really is is a lens that, yeah. that we can through which we can sort of track the history of american urbanism in effect right actually. yeah that's really the idea of the book is to do that and say baseball is a, a mirror to all of this, and uh, and yet you know also to a lot of the culture in general. I mean, right. you know, baseball involves you know immigration and conflicts in the nineteenth century yeah. over 
that and class issues and race issues and and yeah. you know it's all part of the story. I mean it comes yeah, back yeah. it comes back to kind of how we started this conversation that to talk about architecture to write about architecture is not to just talk about the form but to talk about all of those other things right. not discounting the form in any way. Precisely. And that's, that's exactly, exactly what you're that's doing. That's exactly here. what I was trying to yeah. do in the baseball book. And 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 it really um, it's a, it's about every step in the evolution of the American yeah. city both what we've done right and what we've done wrong, and yeah. including some of the more recent things. I mean, and, and ending, and I, I want to talk a little bit about the kind of process and your sure, thinking of sure. the book, but I think ending the book with um, kind of talking about the baseball park as, as theme park, or almost like right. the, the, I don't know if you use the word Disneyfication, but the kind of Disneyfication yeah, yeah, that, of all exactly of this. that's exactly the point. Uh, <laughs> that, um, and that parallels the tendency now to treat cities that way. Exactly. That's exactly that, what my that, question which, was going to be. Which is, that yeah. is, and that's, that's the very point. That, that, yeah. You know, when I started the book, I thought there were basically three distinct phases. There was the early years where right. it kind of grew organically out of the city and <laughs> felt intimately connected to the urban fabric. There was the movement to the suburbs, the concrete donuts, which parallels the urban yeah. exodus. And then beginning with Camden Yards and Baltimore, the attempt to return to the city. And then as I was getting into it, I realized there's, we're in fact now at the beginning of a, what may be a whole fourth phase, which is the reconsidering or reconfiguring of the city as theme park right. around the ballpark. And it was very interesting to me to read that last chapter while at the same time reading all of the reviews, we're sitting just a couple blocks away from Hudson Yards, yes. which is the exact thing that you're talking about in the book. Right, um, right, right. How, this is such a big question, but where did this idea that the baseball park could be this lens through which to see the city, and that you are exactly right, that these phases of how we think about the city are all mirrored in this these well, I just structures. Kind of looked at what had been happening, you know. And, <laughs> Where are you a baseball fan? Not, is this something I, you're I, thinking I, about? I, I like baseball. Okay. I am not one of those like crazy mad obsessive fans who can tell you who played in the World <laughs> Series in 1928. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I'm not. I'm not that. And um, it's only by accident that I happen to remember the Mets are playing the Padres tonight in San Diego. <laughs> Um, because I saw something on my phone about it. So I, I don't follow it obsessively, but I like it and enjoy it and am interested in it. Yeah. I think if I didn't, it would be too hard to write the book in the same way that you might not be an obsessive uh, musicologist, uh, but you'd have to sort of like music to write a book about concert halls. It's odd to like, hate music. And not. So I do like baseball, even if it's not my whole, you know, my, my biggest obsession. Um, the origins of the book really come back to The New Yorker. Okay. Um, it's now, oh God, I can't believe it. It's a whole 10 years ago when the new city field and the new Yankee Stadium opened. Right. And I wrote a column on them for The New Yorker. And I started delving into the, the history of both places okay. and ballparks. And I realized that the history of these places was far more interesting and complicated than I had known. Right. And I just kind of put it in the back of my head that there was more there. And then uh, I, my publisher said, we were, that was just as we were getting going on the Gary book. And they okay. said, 
we'd really like to, would you be willing to commit to two books, not one? Hmm. And if so, what else would you like to do? And I said, what about this? And they actually liked the idea. They just said, just don't start it till after the Gary book. <laughs> right. And so um, I have been committed to doing it okay. since, uh, I don't remember, what, like 2011 or whenever we started, I started on yeah. the Gary book. And then, but I didn't really do any work on it until a couple years ago. So can you talk a little bit about the, that like research process and you know, that this is now something you've been thinking about for 10 years. How do you start to shape this into a narrative, shape this into a book, kind of constantly probably finding new bits that can fit into this? Yeah. Something that takes this time. And I guess it's probably the same for, for Gary also. Yeah. I mean, well, in both <laughs> cases, I, I, they were interesting and not precisely as I had thought. Yeah. You know, with Gary, having never written a biography, I thought, well, the one thing that's not hard is organizing it because it's chronologically right. started at the beginning, you go to the end, there right, we are. Right. Um, in fact, it's incredibly hard because um, nobody's life fits into neat yeah. patterns. Yeah. And everybody's life involves a lot of stuff at once. Right. And yet you can't tell a coherent story unless you break it up. And yeah. so, and I, and I looked back at other biographies and realized that, in fact, like a film script, right. they actually do a lot of artificial things that are neatly enough stitched together so you don't realize yeah, yeah, that yeah, 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 yeah. this is, you know, taking certain liberties. And right. so figuring that out took a while, and, and, uh, but eventually I did it, and I think it worked yeah. well. Um, and I know Mark Lamster had the same situation yeah, yeah. with Philip Johnson, I'm sure. So, um, with baseball, I guess I was helped a little bit by the publisher asking me to do something normally I have not been asked to do, but they uh, were just nervous enough about it, so they said, can you give us an outline, just so we're sure mm. this is you know, a, a serious enough book, right, this is right. Knopf after right. all, not, uh, you know, whatever, some yeah, yeah. Uh, fly-by-night publisher. And so that forced me to sort of focus on it a little bit oh, okay. at an early point and do just enough research to kind of really begin to frame it. And then, of course, when I really got into it, I realized that the story was richer and more complicated and denser yeah. and all that than I yeah. thought. And I varied a certain amount from the outline, but that's that's fine. Um, I had thought that the story, the real beginning of the story, or the, 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 the significant beginning of the story was in the 20th century when places like Fenway Park and Wrigley Field yeah, yeah. and Ebbets Field and all that were built. Um, and that I'd probably write one quick chapter that would tell what happened before that would probably be sort of boring and I'd get through it as quick as yeah. I can to get to the really interesting stuff. Right, right. Well, that one short chapter became three long chapters because actually it turned out to be really interesting. Yeah. And all this stuff that I really didn't know about until I started researching it. And so it became, uh, you know, all that stuff I think got bumped to chapter four, all this other stuff came right. to the beginning of the book. Right. And it was, um, so that was something that happened as I went Similarly, at the other end of it, the story, um, what we've talked about a moment ago about the, you know, the city of theme park, while that trend 
had begun to be visible in our culture before then, I had not been conscious of its connection to baseball particularly. Right. And then when the Atlanta Braves decided to do this sort of, I think, unfortunate thing yeah. outside yeah, yeah, of Atlanta, yeah. um, that was sort of, suddenly there it was. So right in front of me, you couldn't ignore it. And then I looked at some other stuff and realized that, in fact, there's a kind of theme parkization of a lot of the yeah. stuff that has happened in the last few years. And you look at a place like um, St. Louis, where there's actually a rather nice, good uh, downtown stadium that um, is excellent in a lot of ways. Um, but the, the team, when they tore down its predecessor, they kept that next door. They kept that land, and now they're right. developing right. it all right. as what they right. call ballpark village. Yeah. So that even in the limited, I realize that there's this whole thing, and then Chicago, where the new owners of the Cubs have thankfully kept and upgraded Wrigley Field, not torn it down. Nevertheless, you know they are buying up land around and making it a much more generic neighborhood than it used to be. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a loss. And, and right. that, even that falls a little bit into the same category. Yeah. So I realized there is this whole other phenomenon. So the, in the outline, the last two chapters of the book were really one chapter. Oh, and interesting. As I was writing it, I broke them apart because I wanted to give more emphasis to yeah, the yeah, whole yeah. theme park idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, I mean, honestly, that was one of my favorite favorite chapters of the book. It's and, really interesting. Yeah. And it's what's happening now. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. what's unfolding right now. Yeah. And so uh, there's also something kind of fun about doing a book that has its sort of, you know, one leg planted in the history in the 19th century. Right. And the other one is actually trying to be up to the minute of what's going yeah. on right now and trying yeah. to make connections between them. Going off of that, I have just three more questions to kind of wrap it up. And I kind of want to pull back from that, what we were just talking about and, you know, talking about kind of the, the history of architecture and also kind of where it is today, talking about the trajectory of your career and the change in architecture criticism. I'm curious if you have thoughts about what's what is missing in architecture criticism right now. What's next? Mm -hmm. What should people be writing about, thinking about? What are the, the issues? Um, where do you kind of see this field you know, going? It's an interesting question. Um, I might have answered it differently before Hudson Yards. Oh, interesting. It's been really interesting. I've not myself written about Hudson Yards, um, but I've read with tremendous interest as much as everything that yeah. everybody else has written about Hudson Yard, it is fascinating that almost none of it is positive. Mm -hmm. um, and that so much of the negative criticism has been sort of economic and class-based. Yeah. And also been very aware of urban design issues. It's been much more than just saying, you know, right. these are kind of ugly glass buildings. Right. Um, and that's fascinating. Um, yeah. I mean, whether it's right or wrong and all that and, and who knows what the long view will be. I mean, who knows a lot of things. Yeah. I, I'm not myself commenting, although obviously I agree with that. <laughs> right. right. But um, it has made me feel 
somewhat more hopeful. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's been because there's been a lot of strong, good writing that has really stepped up to look at it in terms of the bigger picture. Um, so, uh, but it's and there's also been a real range from intensely personal pieces uh, yeah, to yeah. sort of less so. <laughs> right. Um, and so I, I know what I just feel is there should be more of it. I yeah. Mean, you know, thankfully, the New York Times, which is not always occupied the um, position at the center of the discourse that it used to have, has very much claimed that position for itself on Hudson Yards, yeah. which is which is good. Um, I mean, it, it, people are talking about what they read in the New York Times. Right. And that's something that is welcome. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sorry the New Yorker doesn't do regular architecture criticism any longer. And yeah. That, I mean, it, it's a reminder that we could use much more of it. Yeah. But there's been a lot of good writing, and I think, um, you know, Curbed and several good websites have sort of stepped up to do, yeah, yeah, do yeah. stuff, which has been welcome and, and so forth. So um, it's sort of weird that it has taken Hudson Yards yeah. to kind of wake up the civic discourse and architecture criticism, but it seems to have done that. Uh, whether it lasts, right. whether it sustains itself or not, or whether it now fades back again and we see much less. I mean, uh, the big problem with architecture criticism generally has been there's been just not enough of it, and it has suffered, to return to something we talked about before, from the larger challenges of journalism right. today. Right, right. Uh, and so forth, as, as newspapers cut back and cut back and cut back, and magazines too. Yeah, I think I think you're exactly right, and I think, um, like you, I've read everything that I can on Hudson Yards and have loved that kind of larger view. Yeah, that you know, nearly everybody has taken, and I I actually kind of think hopeful is a good word, and I am curious to see yeah, if that yeah, kind of lasts. I mean, well, we'll, I, we'll see. I don't know. Um, I mean, it's, uh, of course, one of the appropriate questions is, okay, where were all these people when this thing was being planned? Right. And why, you know, right. um, and, you know in, the, in the glory days of the New York Times, which I really put not my time, but Ada Louise's, because <laughs> yeah, yeah. when she was, you know, the ultimate voice, um, often, you know, if, if she wrote negatively about a project when it was in a planning stage, it wouldn't happen, or it would happen in a take a different form, right, or something right, like that. Not right, always, but sometimes. Right. And you know, we there was no real discussion about that. Uh, yeah. In, uh, but uh, anyway, here we are, and at least the reality is getting people to respond, and and that's that's great. Yeah. What uh, you know, you just finished this book that you just mentioned was you know essentially like ten years of of thinking. What's next for you? Do you have other ideas? Um, Are you I have a projects? somewhat shorter, smaller project I'm sort of in the middle of now that okay. I hope will be done this year or next and out the following, I thought, which is also a book on a, a city-type book. It's actually about Dumbo. Oh, interesting. How Dumbo came to be in the history of that one neighborhood. Oh, wow. As 
you could say, as a place that represents the opposite set of forces from those yeah. that brought Hudson yeah. Yards into being, actually. And because whatever, whatever one doesn't like about Dumbo, uh, one would nevertheless almost surely prefer it to what you don't like about Hudson Yards, <laughs> right? Right, I mean, you know, right, like, right. You know, if you pick your poison, you certainly, the gentrification of Dumbo is um, something that it's far, is, is far more positive than that of Hudson, than the whole right. Hudson Yards saga. And so, and it's just an interesting, unusual story. Uh, yeah. And that sort of, that's so interesting. what I'm working on now. It's not a, it, it, it's more of a, it's a book for Rizzoli that will be okay, more that's a what I was gonna ask. picture coffee table book, but with a text, it's more than an introduction. It'll be a, right. a sort of short, we're trying to figure out now because I actually found myself, I agreed to do it thinking it would be just a long essay on Dumbo <laughs> that would be yeah. um, in front of a book of a lot of pictures. And then sort of like... This is becoming things, a theme of I this conversation. I just got into it and yeah. I found, again, there's so yeah. much interesting history, yeah. including you know long, the, the 19th century. Yeah. There too, the history is interesting and unexpected in Dumbo. And uh, uh, most of the land, you know, between... Um, the Fulton Ferry and Brooklyn Navy Yard was owned by, um, I forget the name now, but um, some guy who was a huge uh, Tory sympathizer in the Revolutionary War. Okay. And he fled to England when the British lost and the land was seized by the government and then sold to the Sands family of Sands Point, Long Island, okay. who tried to develop a small little village on the waterfront that was called Olympia. <laughs> oh, interesting. That has completely disappeared. Yeah. Um, it never really got traction. It only lasted like a generation or so. And um, basically was driven away by the industrialization of the waterfront. Because yeah. people didn't want yeah. to live on the waterfront when all the piers were being built and right. factories right. and all that stuff. And But the reason, uh, I don't know if you, how well you know Dumbo. Yeah, you know yeah, yeah. I actually, I, oh, okay. I for like um, by chance lived in Dumbo for six months, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> like nine years ago. Well, well now. you know, I always wondered why there was this street called Main Street in yeah. little Dumbo that was like three blocks long. Yeah, I mean, why, yeah, why, yeah. It was because that was Main Street of Olympia. Those streets were the little streets of Olympia, and the streets and the names stayed even as yeah. Olympia disappeared and factories and piers and everything yeah. were built. So, um, so there's like anyway, there's yeah. interesting stuff, and so I found myself writing more than I thought I would there too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, like I said, I, I by chance for like six months lived in Dumbo when I first moved to New York like uh -huh. ten years ago, yeah. which is. It was at the beginning of what it's now. It was before it got completely yeah off the, off the over the top. Yeah, yeah. and so yeah. like you know, so when I go there now, it's just like what this is completely different. But it's been it's a area that has always fascinated me yeah, just from exactly. walking around when well, I lived there. And, and I love how urban it feels. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and and um, and it has some sort of Soho qualities. But with a waterfront, right? And of course, now with some of the same issues that compromise Soho as well. But yeah. um, you know, as with Soho, I mean, you know, annoying and frustrating as many of the things about it are, 
how lucky we are that it's still there. Right. For us to screw around with, as opposed to, I mean, imagine you know, Soho was almost completely demolished for the Lower Manhattan Express. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We came this close to losing that entire. Yeah, that's a good point. And same with Dumbo. I mean, at least it's there, and it feels still, you know, urban yeah. and tough yeah. and powerful and strong and beautiful. And all right, yes, you know, maybe it's a little too easy. To buy a croissant or a smoothie, then <laughs> that's true. But you know, is is this truly the yeah. worst sign of civilization? No, it's not. I mean, it's okay. I can't wait for this book already. I'm this, oh, I'm, I'm so excited. Good. My my last question is: We started the conversation talking about Ada Louise and kind of your your sure. mentors, your models. I'm Curious, who are people that you're kind of reading now that are exciting you? Or are there mm. books or publications or things that are kind of getting you excited around all of this stuff that we've been talking about? It's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure, but I don't mean that to suggest there's not. It's kind of very scattershot. Yeah. And maybe that's because that's how things that, are right Yeah, that's now. just the and, world. And, yeah, right. That's how the world is. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I still sit and read a print edition of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal in the morning, but that's more because I always have and I like the familiarity of it. In reality, it's more an empty gesture because I've read most of it online already anyway. <laughs> so it's more just sort of, you know, yeah. because I'm not really awake anyway, and so you flip right, the pages right. and you sort of gradually wake up. Oh, man, I love but, that. But, you know, uh, I read, you know, all kinds of stuff online as I find it. Um, and, and, and try, as I try to spend more time writing books, I try to spend more time reading them too. Right at this moment, I'm reading the Fiona McCarthy biography of Gropius, actually. Oh, nice. Which is kind of interesting, actually, and, and pretty good. Yeah. Um, I know I've read some other really good stuff lately that I'm somehow blanking on. But no, I, I, that Gropius book's been on my list. I've, I, like my... my uh, obsession with reading everything I can about Hudson Yards. I've been trying to read everything about the Bauhaus centennial also. Right, right, and so right, that book's right. been on my list, so I'm glad that you like yeah, it. Yeah, it's good. Um, I'm, it, 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 she has an odd style, kind of um, blunt in some ways, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, it's still a good uh, narrative, I think, solidly and well told. And it makes it clear that Gropius is a more complicated, nuanced figure than history has necessarily made him out to be. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, just just to kind of wrap this up, maybe connect it back to the beginning, as I was preparing for this, I was uh, found myself on a rabbit hole of reading old Ada Louise pieces and found where she was writing about uh, Grand Central and Gropius and kind of calling mm -hmm. him out for, oh, uh, you know... <laughs> it was appalling, the yeah. whole the Pan Am building thing. Yeah. Appalling and horrible and he and Breuer both damaged their legacies hugely in taking that on. Yeah. Um, today, of course, you know, in the age of Hudson Yards and super tall towers, you kind of wonder if anybody would take the time to criticize an architect for becoming involved in right. a commercial project that they could not adequately control and damaging hmm. their reputation as a result of it. Um, that's certainly, you know, yeah. we see it, 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 it somehow 
appears. Um, I wonder if, if you know, their own involvement was certainly if Gropius and Pan Am was more innocent. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, Breuer and Grand Central. Yeah, that was pretty horrible. <laughs> Deservedly got. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a yeah. I think that's a great way to wrap this up, Paul. Um, thank you so much for this conversation. It's an honor to have you on the fun. podcast. Fun to talk. I'm a fan. Thanks for thank uh, thanks for your time. Well, thank you. This episode was recorded on May 8th, 2019 in New York City. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.